Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all again after a couple weeks. Um, by way of introduction, uh, last time we spent the whole hour essentially talking about this idea of us as Christians persevering through the Christian life um, in connection with God preserving us. So today, Lord willing, we will actually begin our study in Hebrews. Um, but before we, we jump into it, I wanted to say a few, a few brief comments just about the way we're going to go about this. So sometimes if you're looking to study a whole book of Scripture, there will be certain passages or verses that are helpful for allowing you to interpret the whole book kind of through the lens of what that verse is saying. So for instance, in John's Gospel, at the very end of the Gospel, he says, you know, now Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so when you look at that verse, you can kind of go back through then, through the whole book of John, and see how he is, he is recording in that book different signs that Jesus has done, and his intent behind that is for his readers to believe who Jesus really was. So I want us to look at the very end of Hebrews as we begin to find a verse that is very similar to that, um, that will show us a little bit of how we ought to interpret this book. So if you turn with me to Hebrews 13, we'll be at the very end in verse 22. So Hebrews 13, 22 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. We'll end our reading there with just one verse. It doesn't sound super significant, but one thing I want us to note is when you look through the book of Hebrews, it's primarily a, a book of doctrine and a book of theology. You have a lot of various theological topics that the author brings up and talks about. And he talks about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Um, people have, in talking about theologians in the Middle Ages, they've made fun of them sometimes for talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Well, Hebrews even has things to say about our theology of angels. But in spite of all of the doctrinal emphasis of Hebrews, the author of it views the whole letter not primarily as a lesson in theology, but as a word of exhortation. And when we think of exhortation, there are a number of things that can come into our mind. Often, exhortation is thought of almost as a warning. Um, so to exhort someone is to urge them to do something or to change something, and kind of with... with uh, the idea that if they continue on with what they're doing, it will not end well. So you're exhorting them to do something. But exhortation kind of has two sides to it. There's a warning side, and then there's also a positive side that's more encouragement. And actually, in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, the words encouragement and exhortation are usually from the same Greek word. And what's interesting is that word is actually the same word in noun form that 
we, we call the Holy Spirit a paraclete. That same word, parakaleo, is the word for exhortation, for encouragement. And so when we think of even the Holy Spirit's ministry to us as believers, he is our advocate, our comforter, our encourager. That is a similar ministry that exhortation should have in the lives of believers as well. A ministry of warning, but also a ministry of, of encouragement. So, one of the things that I want us to consider over these next few weeks is how do exhortations, which generally tend to be on the practical side, you can think of in Paul's epistles, he'll have whole first half of the epistle is all theology and doctrine, and the second half is more practical things. Like in Romans, you have Romans 1 through 11 unfolding all this doctrine. And then beginning in chapter 12, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's an exhortation. You know, I appeal to you. You know, do this thing. Hebrews is not like Paul's epistles in its structure. So Paul goes to theology and then like, the practical exhortations. Hebrews is full of theology, but the entirety of it is an exhortation. And so one of the things that I think we can draw from that here at the very beginning before we really jump in is just the reality that doctrine itself is practical. Theology is practical. And it's not simply the conclusions that you can draw from theology. It's not simply the exhortations themselves that are practical, but all of the, the doctrinal truths, the theological truths about who God is, who man is, all of those things are in and of themselves practical for the life of the Christian. So as we jump in, we're going to look through the book of Hebrews at a number of these different exhortations that come throughout the book. And we're looking at this again through the lens of Christians persevering in the Christian life. Um, and we will do our best to connect perseverance with doctrine. So to begin our study, we are going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, before we read this passage, um, I had a couple siblings who were art students for a little bit, and one of the first classes that they took was a, a drawing class. And one of the interesting things with that drawing class is no matter how much experience the students had coming in, those who are brand new and those who were, have been drawing for a long time, they started them all at the very same place, and it was a pretty high level of art they were starting at. Um, they were starting it drawing straight lines um, and drawing squares, and eventually they got to drawing circles as well. Um, but by the end of the class, they were making it so that they were teaching the students a procedure of drawings so that they could sit back and look at a structure, look at a building or a tree or whatever they wanted to, and they could draw it with the lighting, the shadows, 
And it was kind of amazing to see from some of these students who had never drawn before in their lives, what after just one semester of studying, what they could end up drawing. But if you're trying to spend you know, a few weeks just drawing straight lines, it's going to get fairly discouraging, and it's going to be fairly boring, unless you have in your mind an idea of where you're going. And if you know why you're supposed to be drawing those squares, why you're supposed to be drawing those circles, um, it makes it much easier to actually do it. But on the other hand, if the teacher of the class tells the class at the beginning, you know, here's this picture of this really great building. Now, by the end of this class, you're going to be able to draw that. And then he doesn't tell them how. He doesn't tell them to draw the straight lines and the squares. They're never going to get to that point on their own. And it's actually going to be much more discouraging trying to get there without going through the squares and the straight lines. And all that is just to say, in Scripture, there are many things that we are told to do. But if all we think about is the commands themselves, what to do and what not to do, that can become very easily, very quickly discouraging. And without understanding why is it that we are being told to do these things, we don't have much chance of actually succeeding in obeying those commands. So as we look through each exhortation in Hebrews, our goal will be to kind of ask two questions of it. One, what are we being exhorted to do? And two, why are we being exhorted to do it? And it's a fairly basic structure, but I think we, we should be able to learn quite a bit. So Hebrews 2 We'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read the first four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Before we jump into this, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us all here together this morning to study and meditate on your word. And we do pray that you would open our eyes to behold truly wonderful things out of your word. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to it and that you would sanctify us by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Hebrews 2, we have an exhortation here. 
So to start with our study with our first question, what are we being exhorted to do? We are being exhorted to pay attention. So as we look through these four verses, we will have a number of things to think through. There's some, some phrases in here that are a little interesting that you can read over and not think too much about, but when you, you get down to it, it's, it's a little interesting. Um, so to consider paying attention, if I walk up to someone on the street and I say, hey, you, pay attention, they're probably going to have two questions. They're going to say, pay attention to what? And then they're going to say, why should I pay attention to that? And so our author here gives us the answer to both of those questions. What we're to pay attention to and why we're to pay attention to it. So the first phrase here, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now this phrase, what we have heard, uh, we'll come back to this actually at the end of today. I'm going to consider the why first before the what because it makes a little more sense in the flow of the text. Um, but in this passage, just by to survey it, when, when it says pay attention to what we have heard, in verse 2, or verse 3 rather, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation which was declared at first by the Lord? So we are supposed to be paying attention to something the author is describing as the salvation declared by the Lord. So in a very basic sense, we're exhorted to pay attention to the gospel. And again, we will come back to this toward the end. But I want us to just consider a couple things really quick. In this passage, the phrase pay attention is paralleled by kind of the negative form of it. Do not neglect. You have in verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? One of the things that I think is interesting, all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to people who are believers. Uh, in chapter 10, he writes to them as those who have already even suffered persecution for the sake of Christ. So in this passage here, he's not writing to people who don't know Christ and exhorting them to put their trust in him. He is writing to believers and exhorting them to pay attention to what they have already heard and received and not to neglect it. One of the things that I think is interesting, this whole book is written in the context of Judaism and Christianity, kind of butting heads, and Christians um, feeling this, this pull back toward Judaism in, in the early first century but needing to remain true to the gospel of Christ. And we'll see that later throughout the letter. When we think about the Jews, what is it that they would have been paying attention to before Christ came? Well, let's look in verse 2 here. In verse 2 we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So we have a question here. What is the message declared by angels? 
when you read through the Old Testament, there isn't really any time that there is an overall message that comes back in the New Testament that's simply declared by angels. There are specific times where angels come and and speak to people. But there's a couple passages in the New Testament that help us understand what the author is talking about here. So if you'll turn with me very quickly to Galatians. We won't spend much time here. This is just to show what this message is. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing about the relationship between the law and the gospel, or the law and the promise. And in verse 19, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, one of the things that's interesting, in, in the ancient Jewish culture, there is a kind of a Jewish not really a legend, but a common Jewish belief that the law had been given through angels. Um, in the Old Testament, when you read through it, nowhere in the account of Exodus do you actually see the activity of angels. But twice in the New Testament, here in Galatians, and then also in Acts 7, when Stephen is preaching, both of them refer to the law as being given through angels. So we're not going to get into that a whole lot besides just to say that here in Hebrews 2 then, when it says the message declared by angels is talking specifically about the law given on Mount Sinai um, through angels, Galatians 3, by an intermediary who is Moses, right? So this is the Mosaic law that we're talking about. So that brings up an interesting point here. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So in the era before Christ comes, right, you have this law that's put in place, this Mosaic law. And when you think about the Jews in the day of Christ, the Jews paid pretty great attention to that law. When you think of the Pharisees, there were Pharisees who spent their entire lives studying the law and trying to devote themselves to it, not neglecting it. When we think about that, if the Jews gave that much attention to the law, how much more attention should we as believers give to the gospel? If the Pharisees spent so much of their energy looking at their own works and and, and meditating on their own righteousness, as it were. How much more, then, should we as believers spend that same diligence to devote ourselves to the gospel of Christ, to studying his righteousness? You see, in a sense, that's what the author here is saying. There was a message declared by angels. There was the law. But now we as believers, we have the gospel. And if the law was so great that disobeying the law brought condemnation, if the gospel is a greater message, then how much worse is the punishment for rejecting the gospel? Now, I want us to consider the law a little bit. If you'll turn with me to Exodus, I want us to just read here this passage 
of the giving of the law. In Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, we'll begin reading in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And beginning in the next chapter, in chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. This is the giving of the law. This is the scene in which God reveals himself to mankind through the law. And this is somewhat of a fearful scene, right? God is telling Moses to keep the entirety of the people of Israel, away from the mountain, because if any of them should break through, they'll be killed. This is a serious message. The law is a very very serious, a very majestic, in a, in a, a weighty sense, a majestic message. But our author here is saying that the gospel is a greater message than the law. When we think about the gospel... When we think of a baby being born in a manger in a small town of Israel, there's nothing about that that seems half as glorious as God descending on a mountain in thunder and lightning. So what is it that makes this message of the gospel so much more important even than the law that rejecting, you know, when you look at this giving of the law on the mountain. God giving these commandments in that environment, it's very easy to say, yes, of course, anyone who's going to disobey that, the God who's giving a law through thunder and lightning on the top of a mountain and keeping people away lest they die, if he says something, you had better do it. But when you come to the New Testament, in our minds, we often think of, we have this God in the Old Testament who's harsh, he's scary, he's judgmental, he kills people who do the wrong thing. And in the New Testament, you have a God who's merciful. And when Jesus comes, it's almost like God becomes a little bit kinder. Now he's our father. Now if we sin, it's okay because Christ died for our sins already and we don't have to pay for them. I think that's a misunderstanding of both the law and the gospel. And I think Hebrews makes that clear. 
But as we look here in Hebrews 2, just after verse 3, or in verse 3 rather, where we read about this great salvation that we're supposed to pay attention to, the first thing we're told about it is that it was declared at first by the Lord. So for that, I want us to turn back to chapter 1, because our whole passage here starts out with the word therefore, right? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So whatever we're learning from this exhortation in chapter 2, all of it is coming because of whatever was said in chapter 1. So I want us to look back at chapter 1 and walk through this a little bit today. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I want us to stop right there and see a few things. These two verses, I think if you took these two verses out of Hebrews and had someone study Hebrews for a year and then told them to try to write a short introduction that would introduce the theme of Hebrews, I don't think you could get a better introduction than these first two verses. In these verses, we learn two things. First, God has spoken. And second, He's done so in two ways. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And in that statement, you really have the entire book of Hebrews laid out in one sentence. God had done something in the Old Testament, and now he's finishing it in the New. One of the things I want us to note, first of all, is that through both the prophets and through Christ, neither one is less of God's speech than the other. The law and the prophets is just as much the word of God as the gospel. All that Christ said in his ministry, all that his apostles wrote, is just as much the word of God as all that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses wrote. But another thing I want us to see is What this passage is saying is not simply that God has spoken in two ways, but that God has spoken in only two ways. He spoke by the prophets, and now in these last days, he has spoken by his son. And that speech, ultimately, is the last, that's the last revelation from God, is what he's revealed through his son. So if both of these things are God's word, the prophets and the message of Christ, what that means is that they can't contradict each other. There can't be any contradiction between the law and the gospel. And all through Hebrews, what we'll find is that what the gospel is, is not a rejection of the law. It's not a new law. It's a fulfillment of the law that was given in the Old Testament. And so this whole letter is going to be unfolding parts of the old covenant in order to show us how Christ has fulfilled it in the new. And it starts out with this. In a sense, God 
spoke by the prophets, and now his revelation has been finalized and brought to its conclusion in Christ. So as we read through the rest of this chapter here, this chapter really is designed, I think, to show us the glory of Christ. I don't know if there's another chapter in the New Testament that so clearly lays out um, lays out his glory. So let's, let's jump into this. In verse 3, we read this, that Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, so let's consider this, right? We have a law given by prophets. We have this next revelation given by the Son. And who is he? He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So as we look at this, I want us to turn back to another Old Testament passage. We're going to be in the Old Testament a lot as we go through Hebrews. Um, The Old Testament is cited a lot in this book. So if we'll turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll read a passage here. And right now, this is all just to help us see the the distinction between the ministry of the prophets in the old and the ministry of Christ in the new. So Isaiah 6, we read this in verse 1. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I think this might be one of the most majestic passages in the Old Testament of the revelation of the glory of God. The Isaiah, he sees sees God on his throne. He sees the angels worshiping him and his first reaction is to cry out, woe is me. When he is confronted with the the perfect holiness of God, his majesty, Isaiah is undone because he knows his own sinfulness and he knows that he cannot stand in the presence of a holy God as a sinful man. But why are we looking at Isaiah 6 when we're talking about Hebrews? I want us to turn to another passage in the New Testament now. Let's turn to the book of John and go to chapter 12. 
And now in John 12, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. And he says, John says this about his ministry. In verse 37, John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now that's a quotation from just a few verses after where we stopped reading in Isaiah 6. That's verse 10 in Isaiah 6. Now hear verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's that talking about? That's talking about Christ. That Isaiah, when he stood in the throne room of God and was undone by his holiness, whose glory was he seeing? That was the glory of Christ. So now let's think again in Hebrews 1, the prophets versus Christ. Think of Isaiah. He's in this throne room. He receives this message from God, and now he comes back to people on earth and prophesies. You'd better listen to that message, right? Now, what about the one whom he has seen in heaven? Now, that one comes and takes on a human form, takes on human flesh, becomes a man, and comes to earth. Now, how much more ought we to pay attention to what he says? All that Isaiah received for his message came from Christ. And now Christ comes to earth and preaches to us. No wonder then that Hebrew says we must pay much closer attention. Closer attention than what? Closer attention than the Jews were paying to the prophets. But if we're honest, can we actually say as believers that we pay as much attention to Christ as they paid to the prophets in the Old Testament? When you, in the day that Hebrews is written, they are devoting themselves to the study of the law, to knowing the scriptures. They're misinterpreting them. They're not using them rightly, sure, but they're paying attention to it. And the effort that they're putting into knowing the loss, that they might walk rightly, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, don't look at that. Don't look at that. But pay attention to what you have heard. Pay attention to what you have heard, the message that was declared by the Lord, and do not neglect it. And if we look back at Hebrews 2.1, what else does he say there? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. And here we have our whole theme of perseverance coming right back. Why is it that we have to pay attention to the gospel? It's because the author of Hebrews says that if we don't, we're in danger of drifting away. Why should we pay attention to the gospel? Because if we neglect it, the only thing that awaits us is punishment. So I want us to keep going in chapter 1. After verse 3, toward the end of verse 3, we read this. 
After making purification for sins, he, that is Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So here we have a second chain in the author's argument. Why should we pay attention to Christ? Because he's superior to the prophets. Now why else should we pay attention to Christ? Because he's superior to angels. And the rest of this chapter, pretty much, is an explanation of that. So the first reason we see here that Christ is superior to angels is due to his name. It says that he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, what is that name that he has inherited? I think as we go through the rest of the chapter, it will become clear And I want us to see somewhat of a theme here of Christ as the heir, Christ inheriting. So in verse 2, we read this, right? That God has spoken to us by his Son, and that he has appointed that Son to be the heir of all things. We read in verse 4 that Christ has inherited a name. And now what we read in verse 5? We read this, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's the name that Christ has inherited, the name of son. Now when we think of Christ as the son of God, the only begotten son of God, that's a phrase that we've heard so many times that I don't know that we've stopped, I know at least I have not, stopped much to think of what does that mean, that Christ is the begotten son of God. Does that mean that there is a point in time where there is God the Father, And then at a certain point in history, he begat the Son. No. For even here in these first few verses, what do we read? That Christ is the one through whom God created the world. Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Christ himself is just as much God as the Father is. And his eternality is just as eternal as the Father's is. So what does it mean when we read, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Well, this is another one of those areas where there are some other passages in the New Testament that help us to understand this a little bit. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Acts, we'll go to chapter 13 and verse 32. Acts 13.32, we read this. Paul is preaching, and he says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's an interesting passage, that God fulfilled that statement, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that was fulfilled where? In the resurrection of Christ. So when we read this statement of Christ inheriting the name of son, that comes in his resurrection, 
And we see this in another passage. If we turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we read in verse 4. We'll actually go back before this. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God. What, what, how was he declared the son of God? He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his resurrection, Christ was declared to be the Son of God. Now back to Hebrews. What's interesting is we find this fits really well with what we read in the beginning of Hebrews. At the end of verse 3 here, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in that statement, you have Christ living his perfect life, dying as our substitute, and being raised from the dead. And all of those together, in those things, Christ makes purification for sin. And what does he do after he's resurrected? He ascends, and now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So right after we have Christ completing his work as our Messiah, we have this quotation, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, not only is Christ superior to the prophets and the angels in terms of he himself being God, and they are not, but the role that he has is a superior role to theirs. The prophets, all they're doing is speaking of things to come, making known the truth of God. The angels, as we read later in the chapter, are simply ministers to God's people. But Christ is the Son of God, whom God has designated to bear the sins of his people. And in doing so, in offering himself as a perfect sacrifice, Christ then receives his inheritance. Because Christ is the one who is the heir of all things. Christ is the one who has inherited this name. So as we move on, Christ is superior to angels because of his office as Messiah, his office as Savior. Now he's also superior to angels in another way. We read in the second half of verse 5 here, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is an interesting quotation. This comes from when God, when David wants to build a temple for God. And first, Nathan the prophet comes and says, yes, that's a good idea. Go build the temple. And then Nathan comes back to David and says, actually, wait, God has said that you will not be the one to build this temple, but your son Solomon will. And right after that, God says of Solomon... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And it comes in the context of the Old Testament is structured as a a series of covenants. And God makes a covenant with David that David will forever have a son sitting on the throne of Israel for all eternity. And David's first son to sit on that throne is Solomon. 
and God speaks these words, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But now the author of Hebrews attributes these to Christ, showing that not only is Christ the perfect prophet, not only is he the Messiah, but Christ is the final king in the line of David. Christ is the one who is seated on that throne and is ruling. As we move on, verse 6, we have another statement. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that phrase, the firstborn, is going to come up again in chapter 2, so we'll save that for next week. But again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, if there was anything else that the author of Hebrews needed to, to finalize his argument of Christ being superior to angels, why not just come on out and say that the angels worship him? You know, and we read in Isaiah 6, Isaiah seeing that glory and seeing angels covering themselves in worship to God. They are worshiping Christ Jesus, the Son of God. And if that's the case, right, if in all these passages, everything is pointed to Christ as being much more glorious than the angels, then though the law might have been delivered by angels, and while that is miraculous in and of itself, Christ is the one who rules over those angels and the one whom those angels worship. And therefore, when he speaks, it is the job of every believer to pay much closer attention to what we hear from him. Now, we have some more here in chapter 1 that we'll have to wait for next week to get to. But one thing I want to say in closing, though this is not written to unbelievers, telling them to believe, and it's written to believers instead, I would pose this question, if it's important for believers who have received the gospel of Christ, who have believed in him, if it's important for them to pay attention to the gospel, what about for the unbeliever? For those who have not believed in Christ? If disobeying the law of Moses on one hand brings condemnation, brings judgment, You know, you think of stories in the Old Testament like Korah and his rebellion. They stand up against Moses, and literally the earth opens up in a big hole and swallows them. You don't see that every day. But if that's what happened to neglecting the word spoken by the prophets, what will be the end for those who have heard the gospel but have not believed it? So really, in a sense, for the believer and the unbeliever, the conclusion of the text is the same. Pay attention to the word that Christ has spoken. And in doing so, we do not drift away. And we'll consider in the next few weeks how it is that God is working through our paying attention to the gospel, as it were, so that he ultimately is the one preserving us. Let's close in prayer and we'll be done. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to the glory of Christ. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Teach us to love you with a true heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.